0: Good morning. Our reading this morning is taken from the book of 1 Peter and starting at chapter 2, verse 1. It's found in page 1014 in the Black Bibles, which you can find by the bookcase over by the door. 1 Peter 2. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual theft and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The word of the Lord.
1: I love your mantra here at grace, at grace Point, which is all of grace for all of life. I love that. And we are hanging on to that really, really hard, that we are people that are living by grace in the everyday stuff of life. Even as I come down here this morning, I was telling Paul, my friend over here, and Chris, another friend of mine, is that uh, I'm preaching to you as a broken man, like, I don't come having anything. I don't, have, I don't have it all together. I feel like I could wrestle the Apostle Paul in the whole title for chief of sinners, right? I feel that in my soul this week. And so I come in here really hanging on to grace this morning, going, if I didn't have grace to stand on, man, I'd be, I'd be hopeless. I'd be nothing right? It wasn't just that grace came into my life 13 years ago as a junkie, as a heroin addict, but even now, 13 years later, as a husband for 10 years, and as a dad to three little ones, and as a, a pastor to a budding church plant in this little area in southern Maine, I'm a man who is in need of grace even today as I come down here. And so I love that, and that's what our hope is uh, in Kennebunk, as Seven Mile Road, is that we would be a people of grace in the everyday stuff of life. But we're looking at First Peter 2.8, And the big idea we're going to hit on this morning is essentially this, is that uh, our spiritual health depends both on the Word of God and the people of God, if I can transition there, right? And think about that. Our spiritual health depends both on the Word of God and on the people of God, that we are just as needy for gospel community as we are for for, for God's Word. Those two things are, are essential to our spiritual health, both as The people, the individuals that that live for God in the everyday stuff of life, but also as the church, that we are needy for both people, the people of God, and God's word, that the two cannot be separated. And really, that the more we lock on to God's word and the people of God, the healthier we're going to be as individuals and as the church of Jesus. And so, with that said, I want to work from these three practical anchors this morning, and they're this. We need to put away all things that kill gospel community. That's first. We need to put away all things that will kill gospel community. Secondly, we need to feast on what gives life to gospel community. And third, we need to come near to Jesus together. So those three things, we need to put away all things that will kill our our community. We need to feast on the things that will help our community. And three, we need to approach Jesus together, because essentially we're better together. All right? We're going to pray. Let's do it. Father, thank you for your grace. That is available to us today, this morning, for us to drink from again, and we're going to do that, and we're doing that. And I pray that your grace would come and continue to transform us from the inside out, so that you would, be, uh, you would be glorified, and that we would be the people that you have made us to be, Father, in this time, in this place, in this season of life. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to do this with, with this group here, Father, and I pray that uh, you'd be good in speaking your word through me, Father, you know that I am a jacked up mess. Lord, but I thank you that you love to come and work through broken things and broken people, Lord. So I pray you would be glorified, and Father, your church would be edified, and that the devil would be petrified, Father, as we leave this place and go live for you in the everyday stuff of life. That's my prayer. I pray you'd hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one, we need to put away all things that kill gospel community. It's right there in verse 1 of chapter 2. Peter says... So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. If you read through the, the letter to Peter, basically Peter's writing to exiles, people who had been exiled uh, in, the, in the, the land which is modern-day Turkey. And these were people who had um, experienced persecution, were experiencing suffering in some ways, and Peter is writing to encourage them and remind them of their status, that, that their permanent home is not this place that we call the world, that they were not... Um, necessarily citizens of this country, but yet to look, to have a greater vision, a bigger picture of what their identity was and who they were, who they were marked to be, now in light of gospel grace breaking into their lives. And so as they continue to live facing facing suffering and facing persecution, remember your identity, remember who you are, remember that you are God-chosen children, that he loves you and that he chose you and that he's in your life and he's walking with you through all types of things. And when that gospel transformation happens um, in people's lives, as they live as exiles, as these people were, um, the gospel will begin to do some different things in your life. It will begin to transform a whole bunch of stuff around as you are on this journey called life, living with a new identity, a new hope, and a new vision. And one of the things he says in verse 22 of chapter 1, he says that there's going to be an earnest love for the people in your life. There's going to be an earnest love for one another. There's a renewed affection that's bent towards loving people that you're called to do life with, the people that now make up part of your family, which is the church. That's Peter at the end of chapter 1, and now he drops this and he says, so put away. Put away literally means take off, um, put off, uh, kill, put away, kill all the things that will destroy gospel community. And this is familiar language in the scriptures. Paul uses this in Colossians chapter three. He's writing to another group of people, another church over there. And he says in Colossians three, he says, but now you must put them away. And what's them? This whole list that he's about to go on. Paul says, put these things away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we do this with our kids. At least I do this with my kids. I've got Dylan, who's six, Lucas, who's four, Olivia, who's two, right? Awesome. Love them, right? But, but I do this with my kids, right? I'm trying to warn them or I'm trying to um, help them see things that will like ruin them or destroy them or make them unhealthy, right? So so I could essentially say like, things like this to my kid, like, hey, you know, uh, don't smoke four packs of Newports a day. Like, that'll, that'll kill you physically, right? Or, uh, hey, buddy, like, eating five guys every day of the week, like, just going to clog your arteries up. Like, probably not a good good idea, right? Just trying to give you some practical wisdom here. Your papa loves you, right? So don't smoke four packs of Newports. Don't eat five guys every single day, right? Because your arteries will explode someday, Right? Or we could sit here and talk about things if we were to encourage one another and say, like, hey, what are some things that destroy our marriage, right? So, so I could sit here and encourage husbands and say, husbands, right, continue to honor, continue to cherish, continue to love your wife, be a one-woman man, which means don't cheat on her physically with another woman or don't cheat on her with a woman from the internet, right? right? These are things that are going to help contribute to the health of our marriage if we put off these things, right, if we don't do these things over here, right? And there's a whole bunch of things that we're warned against to stay away from because they're detrimental to our souls. And we could all sit here and ping pong a bunch of things around that we would warn ourselves of, you know, don't listen to this, don't see this, don't hang out over here, don't do this, right? All bunch of different things. And that's what Peter is warning us of, essentially. Here are some things that will kill your gospel community, that will kill your health as a person who's living for Jesus if you allow these things in your life. And he goes down the list. Peter says malice. Malice is ill will towards another person, right? So you're essentially looking for bad things to happen to someone, right? So uh, someone might come up to me after the service, and, and, and probably rightfully so, and criticize this sermon for whatever reason, right? You might not like the sermon. You might not like the way I dress, or you might not like my beard. I don't tep- typically like my beard, but people in Maine go for this type of thing. So I'm, I'm trying to rock it as best as I can. You feel me? Right? And I may not necessarily want you to die or go step in something when you leave here, but screaming inside, inside my head, jerk, or something else, foul, is a very real possibility with me because I'm a human being, right? The question I wrestled with honestly this week is, and, and it's forced me to kind of think about this even on the ride down, is when I get frustrated with someone who criticizes me or when I get frustrated with someone who does something, like people who main who drive 20 miles an hour below the speed limit. When I get frustrated with people, what are the thoughts that begin to swim around my head? What do I start to think about this particular person, my neighbor, when their dog's barking at 6.30 in the morning? Right, what am I thinking? What are, what are the thoughts that begin to swim around in the pool of my head and my heart? Because the reality is this, is malice will kill gospel community and it will kill my gospel health, all right? So Peter warns us of staying away from malice. He also says deceit. Right, So here we're talking about lies, uh, cunning falsehood, bearing false witness against your neighbor and friends. And in some way, this ties in with what Peter's going to say next when he says the word hypocrisy. When you fight to kill deceit, you're hanging a sign that essentially says in your life and in a gospel culture and church, we start to hang signs when we're going to kill deceit that basically say, no masks allowed. No masks allowed, no deceitfulness allowed within my life or within this gospel community because when we lie, we, we deceive other people. Think about it, right? When we lie, we're deceiving others. We're not telling the truth. We're not being honest with other people about where we're at or who we are or what's going on in our lives because we hide. We put on masks that tell other people, that fail to tell other people how we're really feeling or how we're really doing in life, or what you're really thinking, or what you really believe about something or someone. And when we deceive, we actually deny people the opportunity to help us. When you deceive, when I deceive people, when I put on the mask and I play pretend, I'm actually denying God the opportunity through you to come into my life and help me grow. And move forward in my life or in my marriage or as a dad or as a pastor. I'm denying you and I'm denying God the opportunity to move and work in my life when I live in deceit. And you know what? I have nothing else to really offer you. I'm no help to you if I'm living a deceitful life because all we're doing is pretending. All we're doing is putting on a show, right? So we're no good or help to anybody else. Deceit will kill gospel community, guys. Peter says hypocrisy, and this digs a little deeper than pretending, right? Hypocrisy can mean um, holding other people to um, ungodly standards, holding people to particular standards, and when they don't meet our standards, we feel justified to look down upon them for not meeting our standards, right? right? So have you ever had seasons where you feel like you're nailing it in some area of life? Right, so we're, you know, we're, we're a church here, right? So uh, maybe, maybe it's Bible reading. Let's just pick, pick up an easy one, right, that, that pastors love to just hammer people on. Like, you need to read your Bible, right? So maybe you feel like you're in a season where you're nailing it with your Bible reading, right? You're just killing it. You've got, uh, you've got a, a Bible study software. You've got a big yellow highlighter. You're doing it every single morning. You've got things underlined. I mean, you, you've got the, the, the Greek out, the Hebrew out. You, you're even considering seminary now because you just feel like you are nailing it in some ways, right? Now, all of a sudden, right, because of your three hours a day of killing it in Bible reading, you start to develop this standard or law secretly, subtly in your mind and your heart where all of a sudden, this is, this is very easy for, for, us, for it to come into our heart and our mind, right? But we start to develop a law in our mind that says everyone should be doing what I'm doing. And if nobody's doing what I'm doing, then I have every reason to go around like the Christian Five O and start to pick people off and start to point my finger And make myself feel like I'm better than because I'm doing something that so-and-so is not doing. I start to hold people to my standard of living. My standard of righteousness. In reality, that's hypocrisy. Because here's the reality. You're a human being who lives and breathes. And if you're just like me, a man filled with sin and deceitfulness and hypocrisy... The reality is this, is that, I don't know if you ever watch Breaking Bad, but there's a little Walter White in every single one of us. There's a little bit of corruption in every single one of us. All we have to do is dig to find it, and we will unearth it. We will find it somewhere. And so hypocrisy can kill gospel community. Peter says this, he says envy. This is getting annoyed over other people's good fortunes. And as I thought about this, I said, you know what? It would be really easy for me. My buddy Ryan, who's your pastor, He's posting all these beautiful pictures of him and his family in sunny Florida, right? These goofy pictures with Goofy, with Mickey. His kids are running around smiling, having a great time. Him and his wife, look look like that their marriage is just like, just nailing it, like they're awesome and everything's great and wonderful and he's on vacation. And I'm thinking, man, you know what? Like it's 15 degrees out this morning as I leave my house. It's freezing. I'm in New England. My kids are screaming. I barely slept last night. My wife, you know, is still questioning why she married me at times. Like all these things are going on and I could easily look at him on Facebook or as he's texting me saying he's getting ready to drive back up from Florida go, like, why him? Like, why does he get to go to Florida right now? Why not me? I've been grinding it for the last nine months. Our family's been trying to do the right thing and my kids are nuts and they need a break and we need a break and we need some sunshine. I need Mickey, I need Goofy, I need Pluto. I need all these Disney characters to put a smile on my face in some way. Why Ryan and not me? Right, and I can start to think ill towards Ryan and Jess and Max and the whole crew down there as I look at those pictures, right? (laughs) By the way, I love that he got away. All right, I love that you sent them away, and he's been away, and he's going to come back refreshed. So I love that. But this happens: someone gets blessed with a gift of money, man, and you're and you're fighting to meet ends meet in some way, or or there's some sort of struggle financially in your life, and it's easy to look at the person who's been blessed or, or who's doing well in some way, shape, or form, and to look at them and get mad. This thing of envy will kill gospel community. Finally, Peter says all slander. Right? This is speaking ill of someone, whether it's true or not. Speaking ill of someone. And a good question for us to constantly gauge as we attempt to build a gospel culture within our gospel communities, our churches, is this. Do we talk to anyone and everyone about someone but never directly to that someone, whether it's true or not? It's a great question to ask. Have you ever been a part of church like that? Because I have and it gets ugly when that thing happens when slander works its way into a community. Because slander will kill gospel community and it will kill you if you allow it into your life. And here's the question. Who's Peter talking to as he writes this letter? He's talking to people who follow Jesus. He's talking to gospel communities of people who are attempting to follow Jesus. And the question is, is why do they need to hear it and why do we need to hear it? Do you know who makes up gospel communities? Is sinful people is broken people who even in light of being awakened and changed by grace are still prone to hurting one another, are still prone to allowing this type of stuff to work its way into their lives and the fabric of the culture in which they exist, and it will destroy it. And there's two tendencies we tend to drift to. Either we're going to be strengthened in our community, either we're going to feast on the things that are healthy and that will bring about health in our community, in our lives, or we're going to go in the opposite direction, we're going to wander and we're going to drift. but we never stay neutral in these areas. We're either going to feast on and grow, or we're going to go in the opposite direction. And this is what Peter's warning against, that these are primary relationally sin, these are relational sins he's hitting on here. If you feast on malice and deceit and all these other things, then the health of your gospel community, your church, will erode and eventually be killed. Which leads to our second point, which is this: we need to feast on what gives life. We need to long for, and we need to feast on the things that give life to our health and to our gospel community. Look at verses 2 and 3. Peter says this. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, Peter's not saying that, that they or we are just Infant Christians or baby Christians all the time, but he is saying that our dependence is like that of a baby longing for milk, for mama's milk. We should be craving, we should be longing for the pure spiritual milk, which Peter alludes to as the word of God. He says by it in chapter 1 that we are saved by it, it's the imperishable seed the word of God, that we're saved by it. And then he also says here now that it's by the word of God that we actually grow up into our salvation. So it's by it that we're saved and it's by it that we stay healthy and we continue to grow from infants to children to young adults as we journey on this thing called life, trying to follow Jesus. And a good question to ask ourselves here is this. Am I hungry for the word of God? I had to ask myself this, even this again this this week, am I hungry for the word because if not, there's a very real thing that happens, right? There's a very real thing that's happened in my life even at times over these last six months and trying to transition from being full-time pastor to now working as a cabinet maker part-time and trying to plant a church and trying to be a dad and all these different, it's easy for me not to feel or be feasting on the scriptures for my health. There are times where I don't feel hungry the scriptures, and it's become oftentimes that we become numb because we get distracted from it. And I could sit here and give you a multitude of excuses as to why I get distracted from it, but I was thinking about it like this. Um, I found that there are times where I become numb to my wife's voice, my wife Danielle, right? So my wife has a beautiful voice. She's a pretty cool person. She'll make you laugh. She'll make you smile. She's a, she's a decent person, right? And she's got this beautiful voice, but there are oftentimes where I get distracted from my wife's voice. Most of the times, because there's a Bruins game on TV. Right. Like last night, I'm watching the Bruins game, and I, my wife is trying to ask me something, and she's sitting right next to me, and I'm zoned in, right? I'm watching second period action. And she's all, the, I didn't even realize, but she's like, Brian, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, ah, Brian, oh, ah. And then she has to go, Brian, hey, ho, hey, I'm over here, right? Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm right here, right? So her voice goes from beautiful to tense to annoyed to aggravated to not wanting to speak to me, right? Brian, do you even hear me? I'm speaking loud. Do you hear me? The reason we get numb to God's word in our lives is because we're too busy looking for something else to feast on that we think are gonna make us healthy or that we think are better for us at that particular time. Something we're looking for to fill those hunger pains we experience because we're all worshipers. As human beings, we're all worshipers. We all have this innate thing in us that causes us to wanna worship or latch on to something or someone to fill whatever void we have in our lives. And because we're worshipers who don't automatically turn to God and worship, man, we're going to turn to a variety of different things to worship in our lives. Things or people who were never meant to fill those voids, right? You come home from a long, exhausting day at work and, and think, man, I just need to get home and have a drink or two or four or six in order to take the edge off in order to relax, in order to wind down. Or I need to sit in front of the tube for the next four or five or six or seven hours just to disconnect in some way, shape, or form. Or maybe I just need to golf five days a week and just get out of the house and take my mind off of things. And that will solve the problem of why I'm frustrated and tired. Right? And these are easily things, right? And you could fill in the blank. These are easily things that we can start to find refuge in. Whereas Psalm 62 the psalmist says this. He says, trust in him, God, at all times, O people, and pour out your heart before him. There's a lot of comfort in that, right? That you can pour out your heart before him. That Jesus never says to wait until you've got it together in some way or you've, you've fixed all of these things before you come to him, but you can come to him in your brokenness. You can come to him in while you're fractured, you can come to him. While you're such a mess, doing all these other things, you can come to him at any time. That's the safety of the gospel, that we can approach him. And the psalmist says that God is a refuge for us. We're more dependent on the word of God for healthy living than we actually know or believe that we'd like to admit. And just like healthy living doesn't come f- come from a part of good eating or no eating, we will waste away if we don't feast on God's word regularly as part of our diet, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean you always have your face in the word, walking around like this or walking around with the highlighter or walking around with a big study Bible or having some sort of Bible study software on your phone or your iPad, right? But it's allowing the word to be in you as you live life. You know it, you dwell on it, you meditate on it, the law of the Lord day and night. You'll be like a man planted by streams of water that never fails to yield fruit, no matter what season of life you are in, because the word is in you. Right? So, we're not trying to travel down legalism road with this thing. I'm not here to tell you that it should be at least five times a day or for at least three hours of day. But I am saying, as a friend who shows up from time to time to do this with you, because Ryan allows me to, is that it should be a regular rhythm in your life where you are feasting, where you are nourishing your soul in this thing because regular intake of God's word should be something that we discipline ourselves in, right? Just like I set my alarm to go to CrossFit every single morning, right? Can you tell from the last time I was here? You can notice that I've been doing CrossFit regularly, right? right just like i discipline myself to do that every single morning same thing with the regular intake of god's word set the alarm make it a priority in my physical health and in my mental health and in my spiritual health because i don't these things don't come naturally to me and i would venture to say they probably don't come natural to some of us in here as well too peter drives all this home by adding verse 3 take a look at it one more time verse 3 says this he says if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, right? The thing that drives all of us to discipline ourselves in this is the fact that we have tasted that the Lord is good. And this doesn't mean that you've tasted your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith. You haven't tasted necessarily a good set of doctrinal beliefs that you feel like you could adhere to or that sound good or sound right or sound morally right in some ways. But you've actually tasted and seen, like the psalmist says, that the Lord is good. And because you have tasted it yourself, you long for it again, right? Just like the t- like, like Stachi's, right? Have you been to Stachy's in North Andover for their pizza, right? I could tell you for, for a long time, I had heard that it was really good. Somebody had been telling me, oh, you've got to go to Stachy's great place for pizza, right? And I had been looking for a good place when I was pastoring in North Andover a while ago. Oh, I, I'm looking for a good place. And, and people would tell me, oh, Stachy's is really good. So then I'd start telling people, like, oh, yeah. Uh, you're looking for a good place, to go to Stachi's. It's great. I hadn't been there. I hadn't tasted anything over there. And it wasn't until I actually walked into Stachi's Pizza, right? By the way, you're going there for lunch if you haven't eaten there, okay? I went to Stachi's and was blown away. Actually, I had pizza with you and your wife there, Sue, and was blown away by the pizza. And it was good. Now I had something to go on. Now I could actually, from experience, tell people, yes, Stachi's is good. Jonathan Edwards wrote this in his Divine and Supernatural Light. He said this, he says, There is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and the beauty of that holiness and grace that comes from God. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. Because a man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey is in his mind. There's a huge difference between opinion and sense, Edward says. And so the question is this, have you tasted the bitterness of your sin and condemnation before God? Have you seen that apart from the saving grace of Jesus that you and that I are utterly helpless to make ourselves right before God? And have you tasted and have you seen the beauty and the riches and the promises of gospel grace that comes to undeserving sinners through Jesus Christ? Have you tasted that? Because if you tasted that, then this promise is for you, Peter says. Transformation will happen as we feast on God's word and as we put off the things that will kill gospel community. Thirdly, it's this. You and I need to draw near to Jesus together. Verses 4 and 5, Peter says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, plural, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know who the church is? D.A. Carson says it like this. He says, The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education or race or income or politics, nationality, jobs, accents, or anything else. Christians come together because they've been saved by Jesus. Jesus. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. And here's the picture that Peter gives. You have Jesus who is the living stone, who is the cornerstone of the church, which means that the church begins with Jesus. The church is dependent upon Jesus. The church is held together by Jesus. It's a gospel gospel. Community, And when we say a gospel community, it means that there's a gospel good news, one that relies on, one that feasts on, one that's always remembering, one that's fighting to put Jesus and his grace at the center of everything. And it's a community. It's a people. It's an organization of people who come from all types of different backgrounds and political beliefs and economic backgrounds and jobs and statuses. And they're coming together with one common theme, and it's Jesus and his grace. Jesus and his grace. So it is a gospel community, and it will only survive if Jesus is the cornerstone to whom we look to together, the one we learn from together, the one we worship together, not anything else. Anything else as the cornerstone, whether it's the color of this rug, or how we do music, or what the bulletins say, or what type of programs we do, anything else that becomes the cornerstone of a church will deteriorate over time, will fail to be a gospel witness to a community that it's been placed in so that it would shine forth and be a light to the community it's been placed in. We as stones are brought together to make the house, right? So one two-by-four doesn't build the house alone, but it's a bunch of two-by-fours, it's a bunch of two-by-sixes coming together to make up the church. So you know what that means? Our relationship, our Christian walk is not primarily me and Jesus, right? Our conversion is not just to Jesus alone, but it's actually to a new community. It's to a new family. It's to a people as well, right? Our conversion now is is to a community, Ephesians. Paul says this, and you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy dwelling place by God the Spirit, right? So this kills the notion that the Christian life is just me and Jesus doing our thing and that I don't need the church, that the church is just a nice little add-on at the buffet line if I choose to take it. But we need the church. Just as we need the word, we need the people of God in our lives in order to grow, right? And so I will confess to you that my natural tendency when I sin, when I'm tired, when I'm not in a healthy place is to drift away from the people of God My natural tendency is to isolate when I sin. My natural tendency is to pull away from people and not go towards people, right? Because I want to hide in my stuff, right? And I've got a bunch of stuff. And I want to hide. I don't want you to know about it. I feel ashamed. I feel embarrassed by my stuff a lot of times. And I don't want you to know about it. I don't want you to walk with me through it. I want to try and tell myself that I need to figure it out on my own because I'm the one who messed up. I'm the one who needs to work my way out of it. I'm the one who needs to fix it myself. So I don't need you. I don't want to bother you with it. I don't want you involved with it. I don't want to hear from you about it. I'll figure it out on my own, right? I do this at home with my gospel community, right? Because our families, our tribes at home are, are a gospel community. My wife and my children make up a gospel community at home. I don't want to do this with my gospel community at church right now, with the people that I'm doing life with. I don't want to do this with the men that God's placed in my life to help walk with me. Right? Ryan being one of them. I don't want to do that with them, right? And when I do that, I've realized that my health declines. My soul goes into the pit of guilt and shame and condemnation. And I have a really hard time. In fact, it's impossible for me to get out of that on my own. But when I move towards gospel community, the other stones that Jesus has placed in my life. In order for me to be healthy, I find myself becoming more healthy and more better in life, right? Better in my marriage because we are better together, right? So gospel health does not happen apart from the people of God and it does not happen apart from the word of God. If I just toss aside the church, I'll never be who I'm supposed to be in Jesus. I'll never thrive. I'll never be healthy. I'll never grow. I'll never love I'll never serve, I sure as heck won't be able to be used in someone else's life that God has in intent for, right? I'm neglecting part of my identity when I say no to the church or no to relationships. It's part of the vitality of my health that God has purposed for us. And here's where it is. Do you know what a gospel community is made up of? And I said it earlier. It's made up of living stones, Right? of sinners, of people broken who are on this journey of transformation as the gospel takes root in our lives. We are priests, Peter says, every one of us making spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus. So we are serving and we are loving and we are performing our duties as priests, as the people of God to each other. But do you know what that makes them acceptable? Jesus. Jesus makes it all acceptable because our sacrifices and our good works to people are not acceptable apart from Jesus. Jesus Christ became the one true acceptable sacrifice on our behalf so that all of our sins and all of our stains and all of our condemnations and all of our efforts at good works and hopes of being made right with God would be washed away by Jesus. And I'm going to pray. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for grace. And I thank you that grace is available to us at all times, Lord, not just on Sunday when we come here, not just for this moment right here, but your grace is available to us. You offer us continually to come to you when we're weary and when we're burdened and when we're heavy laden and that we can find rest for our souls. I pray for the soul in here, Lord, that needs rest. Jesus, would you meet them? I pray as we come to this table, Father, for those of us who are Christians who have maybe drifted, who have not been feasting on the things that will make us healthy, who have wandered, Lord, I pray as we come broken to this table, we would be refreshed, being reminded of your grace that you offer us to us and that you would nourish us and you would strengthen us so that we would go and be a light in the everyday stuff of life to the people that you send us to. And I thank you that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's upon that truth and beautiful promise we hang our hat on this morning as we come to this table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.